two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and today is a very special episode. This is part one of a two-part series of our first ever international roundtable featuring team members from the Accountability Lab. It is a global network that is finding new ways to shift societal norms, solve intractable challenges, and build unlikely networks for change. Now we have a pretty large group here, and I'll do my best to direct traffic, but going from left to right on your podcasting dials, we first have Blair Glencourse. He is the founder and executive director of the Accountability Lab, and he is based in Islamabad, Pakistan. Hi, Richard. Great to be here. And next to him is Dasuba Kanate, the Monitoring, Evaluation, and Learning Officer from Mali, and she is based in Bamako. Hi, everyone. And next to her is Ava Sander, the Country Director from Mexico, and she's based in Mexico City. Hola, everyone. And rounding out the table is Narayan Adhikari, the Country Director for Nepal, and he's based in Kathmandu. Namaste, everybody. Nice to be here. And today, this fine group of people will give us their thoughts on how their countries are doing when it comes to open government, how well or poorly their country have responded to COVID-19, and how racial discrimination manifests in their parts of the world. Now, full disclosure, I am not a worldly person, so please do not judge me based on the questions that I ask. Now, again, before we begin, and just for clarification and memorization purposes, Blair is in Pakistan, Dasuba is in Mali, Eva is in Mexico, and Narayan is in Nepal. And me, well, I'm based in Toronto, Canada. So let's begin. Blair, start us off. Give us your two-minute pitch and describe what is the Accountability Lab and how it got started. Well, thanks, Richard. And again, great to be, to be with you. The Accountability Lab is now about, about eight years old. Um, and it really grew out of um, some work that, uh, that I had done uh, back with the World Bank in Nepal, actually, uh, where I met Narayan, of course, um, talking to young people in Nepal about, about accountability and about the challenges that they face. And at that time, I was expecting them to say to me, we want um, better education, we want better healthcare." all of these things that, that they need. And actually what they said to me um, and young people have continued to, to say to me since then is, is actually what we want is people in power to be accountable. Um, we want them to have integrity. We want less corruption. Uh, we want more, more rule of law. And, and the Accountability Lab grew out of that realization that, that accountability and open government are really at the heart of all of these other problems. Because unless we can get this relationship right between people in power uh, and in government and citizens, then we're not going to be able to deal with, with everything else that impedes development everywhere. And so out of that came, came another few realizations. One was it has to be about young people, of course, for, for reasons we all understand quite well. Demographically, they, they are the majority now globally. They are more connected uh, and I think more willing to challenge the status quo than any 
generation before them. And if it's about young people, then, then I think it has to be creative and, and looking at the accountability space and governance space. At that time, we realized that, that there wasn't that much creativity. It was a lot of the usual suspects. It was a lot of the same old ways of, of doing things. And to engage young people, we really needed to think, think differently and meet them where they, where they are. Um, and by that, I mean using, using the kinds of tools and, and the kinds of, of media and the kinds of ways that they, they understand change happens through, through music, for example, through film, through technology, through, through many other um, different types of, of tools that can build accountability. And, uh, and third, that, that this was going to be a long-term process. You know, this, this wasn't about small, disparate, projectized approaches to governance. It was going to be about hopefully building a movement and building a network globally of, of amazing young people with great ideas who can shift the way that, that accountability happens. So that's where the Accountability Lab came from. And, and now we're in about 10 countries globally, and uh, those include Mexico, uh, Nepal, and, and Mali. So we're um, excited to, to hear from them today too. Oh, definitely. definitely. You guys have done some amazing work as I was researching for this episode. And I'm going to open it up to, to everyone right now. Uh, one of the things Blair mentioned is some of the tools that you guys have created at, at Accountability Lab. And I'm going to go to Ava first. Can you speak about some of the tools that, that you guys built in Mexico, perhaps, or that some of the tools that were created in Accountability Lab that you were able to bring to Mexico that really helped and created some positive traction? Well, um, aside from Zimbabwe, which just opened today, Mexico is the, is the youngest lab. So we've been... Oh, so, being... so it was a great place for me to start the question, isn't it? <laughs> well, uh, so we, we, we've had to adapt a lot of the amazing work that my colleagues have done. Um, I think uh, Narayan can, can help us, you know, decipher the, the original DNA of Accountability Lab. But, uh, you know, just, just being in, in Nepal at the Open Government Hub, and, and getting to know that amazing team really did inspire me to understand what their work was all about. So, of course, we brought over Integrity Icon, our most well-known campaign. We've been also doing um, a lot of work um, regarding uh, sustainability. So the first thing that we came up with here in Mexico on our own, and quote-unquote, because, of course, it's inspired in, in everything else, it's a project called Oxygen 2030, so Oxygen 2030. And it deals with bridging uh, the digital divide with already like smartphone uh, users. So we know that COVID is bringing a huge economic crisis. And we know that 70% of the smartphones in my country are uh, pay-as-you-go or prepaid. Really? So, 70% of the phones in Mexico are yes. pay-as-you-go? Wow. Yeah. So... With an economic crisis hitting, uh, a lot of people are going to have to choose between buying foods and meds and transportation or rent or buying data. So we don't want, it, we don't want to, for people to be disconnected. So we came up with an amazing partnership. And right now we're having a really hard time deploying the project. This, this first month has been pretty challenging, but it has been very exciting to build you know, a network of people who don't only care about people being connected, but about turning smartphones into economic and social empowerment tools. This is, it's, it's an interesting point you bring up and, and we'll get really deep into the COVID and the pandemic conversation a little later on. But if anything that COVID-19 has highlighted internationally is a digital divide, even in Western countries and in first world countries, it's amazing how prevalent 
that has been highlighted. And I want to go to Desuba here on this and, and ask you that same question, which is, what are some of the tools from the accountability lab or tools that you've created in Mali that have helped sort of, you know, citizens in Mali bring about more integrity and, and accountability? So we are using different tools, but I think one that is really great is actually the Kobo Collect Toolbox. What we have um, to understand, just to give you a little bit of context, is that the literacy rate is not so high here. So it's really important to find tools that will be really, um, that will be easy to use for people and not even use internet because sometimes the connection is not really great. So what is really great about that tool is that you can create some kind of service. You can go absolutely everywhere in all the different community and collect the data without using internet. And this is really a life server for us because there's a lot of location where you don't have network. So, um, so, so it's really, it, it's really important. And what is amazing is that us being a grassroots uh, organization for us, it's really important to go on the ground and be able to measure the perception and talk to all, all people in even like the small villages. So this is, this is like an amazing tool that we're using all the time, basically. Asuba, what, what kind of data are you collecting in Mali these days and what are you using it for? There, there, there are so many, but uh, let's start with um, the first one that we did was to collect data on the antiquity. So just to put a little bit of context again, Mali is going through a multidimensional crisis where we had like a coup d'etat in 2012. So that crisis started in the northern part of Mali, especially Kidal, Tombouctou. Now that crisis is actually coming to the center part of the, of the country. So uh, we decided to actually go in the center part of the, of the Mali to really go see the population and ask some questions about, about the insecurity, trying to see the youth and try to understand why they were getting involved with, the, uh, with some jihadist group or with some rebel group, for example. And most of, the, uh, most of the time, the answer that we were getting was, well, the government is not here. The government is not offering us opportunities. And those groups here are actually offering us security and they are offering us jobs. So meaning that people are not even joining those groups because of, of belief that they have or values that they have. It's really in terms of opportunities, in terms of, okay, we are young people, we are here in Mali, and unfortunately we don't have jobs, we don't have money, and we need to, we need to help our family to survive, basically. So those are, those are the type of data that we are collecting, which is helping us to have a better understanding of, you know, what is really, what is really happening. And, um, and, and there is like information about justice as well, uh, information about, well, right now we are collecting data on COVID-19 and, and again, try to see what people are thinking about the disease and, and so Well, this is fantastic, Desuba. And uh, I want to give Narayan the same opportunity real quick to tell us how Accountability Lab, some of the tools that maybe you've created in Kathmandu or Nepal have helped the community. Uh, thanks. Sure. Like you just mentioned, you know, how, how smoothly we have to build our conversation. I think in, when you talk about accountability, building accountability, we really need to build a smooth conversation with, uh, with the community that we work, particularly with young people, or different generations. 
So let me give you some reasons how we are doing on the ground to validate what Blair mentioned about the, the big vision of the Accountability Lab. First of all, uh, the, what is the biggest challenge that what is lacking is now is the lack of trust. You know, the trust is broken so that, they, you know, it's being very difficult in building accountability. And why is difficult? Because there's corruption, there is, the societies are divided, uh, there are vested interests. So we have, like Blair mentioned, you know, we have, we have gone through several meetings, lots of assessment, uh, you know, lots of conversation and found that the traditional sort of siloed approach is not really working when we talk about building accountability. What we needed is more creativity. But how do we get that creativity? Is obviously one is from young people. But how do you get the young people without creating, them, that, without creating a space for them? So we do something called accountability incubator, where we invite young people. Okay, if you have ideas, any ideas that helps build accountability, either using your music, or films, or theater, technology, or, or, or if you are a cartoonist, if you are a, a rapper, just bring your ideas forward and we will provide you a platform where you, where you can get trainings, you can meet your you know, other uh, peers, uh, learn from each other. So the accountability incubator is a, a tool that we are using since the beginning to really provide a space for innovation because the traditional tools on accountability is so boring, so rhetoric, so finger pointing, and you're doing a lot of checkbox. That's why a lot of young people were alienated in this accountability building process. And often this, when we talk about it, building accountability, this, the idea of anti-corruption becomes so prevalent. You know, everybody was talking about anti-corruption, everybody's talking about bad thing, but nobody was talking about, you know, what works, what is really cool, what is really nice, what is really, you know, fun, sexy, so that, you know, the, the young generation take, take these issues uh, as, as, a, as a matter of their interest. So we started this accountability incubator and it's really, really going well. We have lots of young people who run film school, who, who does theaters, who works in technology, help, you know, help local communities in collecting data on how they are how they are getting their basic services like water, sanitation, and health, yeah, et cetera. So another tools that we use, uh, which, you know, uh, Disuba mentioned, like how we collect data that are relevant to the public in order to raise their voices, demand for accountability, and what we call in, 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 a, in a bigger approach is civic action teams. So it's sort of a feedback mechanism that, you know, empower people to build accountability so that's where this, you know, this appreciative approach, like, you know, highlighting integrity, highlighting what is working well, highlighting what is possibilities, highlighting what is nice and fun is so important than just talking about corruptions and, and, and you know, all, all these kind of things. So I think for, for me, like what, what I'm proud of now is that we, we have become a avenues for explorer and ideas on building social change and particularly on making accountable. Yeah, I was just going to reiterate the great point that Narayan made about, about positivity. Um, and, and this field, I think, generally of, of anti-corruption being, being against something, you know, it's anti-corruption, um, which, which of course we are against. But, but the challenge with that, particularly for the kind of constituencies that we're, that we're talking about, young people, is that it can really sap, sap hope and energy because there's this constant narrative that 
that people are corrupt, that things are going wrong. Um, and that doesn't give them much, much hope for the future. And I think a big piece of what makes the accountability labs work different is we've, we've changed that narrative and we've, we've flipped that, that understanding to say, well, actually there are solutions. There are amazing ideas that you have that, that can work. There are other, other people like you that are, that are good people and are trying to do the right thing. And that, that can build hope. Uh, and, and it helps us create a community, I think, in these different, uh, countries of, of people that, that come together to do things a little bit differently. And then we call it, you know, catching people doing the right thing. We call it na- naming and faming rather than naming and shaming. I mean, it's all about the do-gooders, not the, not the wrongdoers. Lo- lots of sort of fun ways to. <laughs> You're just pulling them out of your holster like boom, boom, boom. <laughs> um, well, but that's that's part of this too, isn't it? It's it's about making this a little bit catchy. It's about making it a bit more, as Narayan said, a bit more kind of sexy for for people, and and not something that seemed to be very technical and very boring, uh, and all about sort of government decisions that are a long way away from from ordinary people. So that that's a, an important part of what we're trying to do. And I want to go back to, yeah, go ahead, Eva, because I was actually going to ask you a question about that on positivity. Yeah. And I think in that sense, you know, um, my specialty is crowdsourcing. And when you're creating, you know, the critical mass needed for that, you know, magical tipping point and things to just go viral, we, we know for a fact that people are, are seeking for great stories. So it's easier, you know, to push forward a positive um, idea, a fresh idea or something. Um, because that tends to be shared for a longer time. So it's just a long, long tail model of sharing. If not, you just have one spike, everybody's angry about something or scandalized about something, and then it kind of dies out. So positivity also brings, you know, that great piece into the equation that can help us uh, move things forward. And that being said, it's also super important to understand the, the differences between the generation that is right now controlling the conversation surrounding transparency, open data, open gov, and whatnot, and the newer generations that have a whole other narrative, a whole other language, you know, visual um, even, or format-wise. So if we're not able, you know, to open up the space for these new, newer generations to come in and teach us how we can speak to them, then we're just going to keep talking amongst the convinced, as I say, you know, it's always a little club, it's always the same people. So how do we bring more people in? And I think in that sense, Accountability Lab is doing a great job of not only proposing and pushing an agenda forward, but also of listening and just, you know, bringing in the right tools for the younger generations to have their chance at at it. Dusuba? You live in a very different world than, than many of us. It just as recently as five years ago or eight years ago, you said there was a coup d'etat in your country and it's, it's spreading. How does a message of positivity, like I can't understand the message of positivity and, and perhaps more established nations is, is an easier message to convey. But in a place like in Mali, how, how is that viewed when there's so much violence taking place at the political level? I, I think it's a, it's a necessity. Honestly, it's not uh, it's not easy because when you go and you talk to the population, um, like my colleague just said, people are always well, but it's the same. It has been like this for many years, for many and many years. So how can we how can we really change things? But how can you change things by not doing anything also? So it's really um, it, it, it's really important to step up and 
and I think that in the context where we are, whether you are watching the media or that you are hearing some horror stories about what is really about what is happening, about the killing, about uh, even like corruption um, and, and how the government is not doing what the, what they are supposed to do. But I, I think that whenever you hear those kind of stories, it's it's really depressing. Honestly, it's like when you are like watching the TV and you are watching the news, you just want to turn it up because it's all all bad things. And for me, it's it's really um, it's so important to be able to work in an organization that is actually promoting or bringing a positive narrative because it's not all bad. It's not all bad. There's there are a lot of people that are doing an amazing job that are really um, in terms of, for example, corruption. Let's talk about the integrity icon. There are a lot of people who are working for the government. And we actually need to put the spotlight on this person so that they can be a role model and we can show to the younger generation that it is possible because people are doing it. It's not an easy process. Sometimes for a lot of people, some, some people are complaining saying that it's, it's not an easy process, but it, it is possible. So our role here is really to put this to put the spotlight on this person and telling them yes you can do it and yes we can do it so let's do it. I couldn't agree more with what you're saying because one of the ways I sometimes describe myself as a fanboy of the movement because I don't like being called an activist or anything along those lines because there's a lot of weight behind that term for people who are not in the space like you, they think you're an angry person. So I like to call myself a lot of the times a fanboy of the movement. I celebrate it. I have fun with it. And I cherish those people that are doing great things. But, and I want to go back to Narayan and Nepal a little bit because there's, that's also a country that's getting, that has a lot of political turmoil and has had it for a long time. And, and you're the one who brought up the issue of positivity. Sure. Uh, yeah, that's a great, great question. I think definitely I think every country has a, has a, has a problem. I think it's the different is the scale and and the intensity. So obviously Nepal being a, such a nice, beautiful country, never been colonized, but we also had a political issue. We we have we have corruptions. We have a change in. We used to have like change in government almost every every year. So, you know we have this different geopolitical context. The societies are so diverse that you can expect that there are so many good things, but at the same time there's there are challenges. There are there are risks and there are threats. Right. But I think what binds together, what binds everything together is, is, is a new hope. And where, where that new hope comes from is that from, from the people who are practicing, practicing good work, you know, who are doing, you know, exemplary work like Integrity Icon. So, and this is, in a way, this may be not new one, uh, but the way that how we do Integrity Icon is absolutely new, very unique because we wanted to engage people on the ground to practice in finding out people who are doing good. Sometimes if you are being, if you are in a part of this conversation where everybody talks about what's wrong, what's missing, then people often ignore and finding on what's working. So this process is really encouraging citizens to find what is working well in their communities. So the integrity icon process from the nominations till the selection of the top five winners and celebrating them in a national ceremony to the, the later engagement and, and collaborations. So there's the citizens 
constantly engage and have, you know, ongoing conversation. And, and this process is really building, you know, the good feeling and also sort of empathy. Of course, everybody uh, have problems. You know, people, are, everyone is part of this, uh, the problem that we have. But it is everybody's responsibilities to find the solution and act positively, critically, and without fear. So the, the message that we are trying to give uh, is, uh, is, is helping a lot. And even in politics, I can see like when we had a new constitution and a stable government, now the more, uh, before they used to talk about power, politics, and the money, and you know, these kind of things, now people begin to, begin to highlight about you know, who is the, uh, the most effective uh, minister last year. You know, the people begin to talk about the good minister, the good, good administrator, you know, the good politician. So I think, I, I would not maybe say that it is just because of the integrity icon, but I think it's the society is now slowly moving into talking about good things. And this model is now adapting in many ways. For example, we do, for example, uh, you know, around COVID response, like we call them Corona heroes, or sometimes frontliners, you know. Some people are doing around the clock hard work, but they've never been recognized. So imagine if you highlight somebody who never been recognized or never been appreciated uh, into a, in a being a you know, into a limelight, think what that person feel first and think about that, fa that person's family and think about the whole community. So the accountability lab, you know, let me, let me cut it short, the accountability lab, what does amazing is to really create a communities that collectively talk about what is working and what is still missing and finding another solutions in a very sustained and entrepreneurial ways. So that's why accountability incubator is so important. So before, okay, you get ideas and you look for funding, you go and beg money from a donors. Now we want to change that narratives. That's why the accountability incubator is that, you know, you have to think how you sustain from the very beginning. We also call them accountpreneurs, so accountability entrepreneur, right? So that you do the good work and the result of the good work will help to, to make a positive change in the society. But you need to survive. You know, your movement needs to survive. We don't want you to end your, your ideas or your work because you run out of money, a fund, right? We don't want to see that situation maybe in the 10, 10 years down the, down the line or 15 years down the line. So making the social movement more entrepreneur and sustaining and having that a larger community who can participate and validate this process is really, really important. And I want to go to Blair on this one a little bit because a lot of the discussion has reminded me of a couple of quotes that I use often, which is the behavior that is rewarded gets repeated. And the other one is, is a quote from C.S. Lewis that I use all the time, which is integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. And the accountability lab, while you guys are doing a great job of profiling these, these heroes, you yourselves may not be getting the accolades that you perhaps deserve because you're doing such a great job of putting the spotlight on others. How are you dealing with that sort of internally in terms of keeping even your, um, your, your personal motivation? It's sort of like no good deed goes unpunished even sometimes. Well, nice of you to say that, Richard. And, and I, you know, I would agree, first of all, that, that uh, integrity is absolutely uh, doing the right thing when, when no one is watching. And that's precisely what we're trying to do with Integrity Icon, for example, this campaign to, 
to name and fame the most honest government officials uh, in the world. Um, and 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 I, to be honest, the the motivation comes with this campaign, um, and and through you know many of the other uh, projects that, that we run, like the incubator that Narayan mentioned. It, it comes from from those people. I mean, the the best part of my job is is hearing about and seeing and meeting these incredible integrity icons that are working in some of the most difficult conditions imaginable for all the right reasons. You know, this, this as Narayan said, it's not that they're looking for recognition. It's, it's not that they come to us and say, I want to be an icon. You know, we, we seek these people out. We receive nominations from, from citizens in the most remote parts of, of Nepal and Mali and, and Mexico and elsewhere. Um, and, and these people are, you know, often without very much pay or even no pay in many cases because governments don't pay them. Uh, are serving citizens, are doing the right thing, have integrity, you know, are making their societies better. One of my one of my favorite icons, there's so many good ones, and they're they're all on a website, by the way, integrityicon.org. You can watch videos about them and, and learn more. Um, but from from Pakistan, there's one lady called Batul, who is a a minority Hazara lady from Balochistan, which is a very difficult place, a very conservative, very, very patriarchal society. And she is is really young um, and has become the first assistant commissioner in Balochistan outside uh, of the capital city of Quetta. So, you know, you can begin to imagine some of the challenges she faces, tons of corruption, tons of misogyny, you know, all, all sorts of corruption and crime and, and is pushing back very strongly against all of these things because it's the right thing and because she knows you know, that that's what's going to make her society better. So she's now continuing to be promoted as a result of becoming one of our icons. We profiled her with a, with a video. And so she was telling me a couple of months ago that, that when this happened, she was the first assistant commissioner that was female. Um, since Integrity Icon, uh, there are now 11 female assistant commissioners because other women saw her video and said, now I realize this is possible, not, not just as a woman, but as a, as a person of integrity, I can actually work within government and maintain my values. So, so this isn't just sort of building integrity. It's also kind of opening up conversations and changes around much bigger issues like, like gender that are really, really important. And, and so it's just really inspiring to see these, these kinds of people and, and hear these kinds of stories. And we have lots and lots of them. And, and so the idea now is to connect all of these icons together to build this community and to help them support each other to, to create the change that, that they want to see. This is a, I love, I remember, I believe Blair, we first met at the OGP summit in Georgia and you told me about, I think it might've been called Integrity Idol. Yes, we changed the name. Yes, I'm assuming they probably came down hard on you in terms of branding and, and intellectual property perhaps. Am I well, we didn't. We didn't want to be confused with that lesser show, you know, American, American <laughs> Idol. This one's much bigger and better. Yeah, and and I love the idea, and it's something that I think every nation should have, and it's wonderful. But we're already running short on time because you guys have so many great stories to say, and I really do want to hit on on some of the COVID nineteen things that you guys have been doing, and more particularly, you guys have recently launched something called Civic, the Civic Action Teams, or you call them Civax Team. And their purpose is to help eliminate information gaps between the government, media, NGOs, and citizens, especially when it comes to debunking rumors regarding the coronavirus. And I'm going to start with Desuba here. Can you tell us, like, what are some of the most common pieces of misinformation or disinformation about the coronavirus in your country? 
so, so at the beginning, people really took it seriously. They bought hand washing stations soap to protect themselves. And unfortunately, right now, the situation is quite different. Um, right now, people, a lot of people are saying that the virus does not exist. And there is kind of, um, some people are, there is like a skepticism around, around that virus, leading a lot of people to question its existence in Mali. And I mean, you just by going outside, you, you, you just have to look at people like everybody's, um, nobody's wearing a mask. People are really respecting the, the social distancing. So I guess the question that we ask ourselves here in Mali is that why that skepticism? Because I think it's it's really something that is that you can find in in, in United States, in Germany. We've seen people um, protesting towards that. But here in Mali, what I think is that there's there there's really like a poor communication on that issue from the government to to the population. There's a few banners in the city. There's daily reports that are being made. Uh, but we do have some literacy issues, so so that's um, it's even though there's report, it's not everybody that can read them. There are some measures that are communicated, but not in the local language, and there is nothing. There is no. It's just word, if I can put it like that. And on top of that, obviously, there is the impact of the fake news. Uh, two days ago, I was actually talking to one of my cousins, and we we're talking about the COVID nineteen, obviously. And he was telling me, well, we don't have that here. You know, it's way too hot. So the people, people believe that because it's really hot here in Mali and we have like, you know, 40 degrees, uh, sometimes it can be up to 45. People believe that because the weather, because the temperature are really hot, then the virus. So that's why we actually, we decided to tackle this fake news and an effort to fight the, the virus. We did that by using, first of all, local language. We are doing that in French, but also in Bambaha. The most- So I wanna, I wanna ask you a question about that first, Desuba. Yeah. I apologize for interrupting. No, no, no. I, I wanna make sure I get this clear. Are you saying that the government itself, the, gov the Mali government is disseminating information on, in a language that its citizens would not be able to read or understand? Um, so the national language here is French. So meaning that whenever you go to offices, everybody's going to speak French. But a lot of the population do not speak French. And a lot of people do not, do not know how to read also. So you do have, we have those report dailies with the numbers, but people are not really paying attention to that. So what we decided is that we are ourselves creating some built-ins with the information, but we are using infographics to make the information more clear and accessible to people. And what we are doing also is that we're doing those built-in in the local language to be more inclusive. Because here in Mali, if you don't talk from Bambara, you're definitely going to put a lot of people on the side. So for us, that's really, um, that, that, that's, that's a must to do. We cannot do, do that just in French. That won't work. Another thing that really, um, that really make the population septic about the COVID-19, because for me, that's the number one misinformation. Like pe people thinking that the COVID-19 does not exist is absolutely not helping. It's it just making the situation worse, right? So another thing is the allegation of corruption. 
the population is complaining about not receiving the, the, the donation that has been made. There is a lot of masks that have been not donated. There is uh, food also that have been donated, but the, 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 the population is not receiving it. And worse, to make the, the situation worse, there is, has been a scandal where we've seen a member of the government um, selling the, the donation. So you can imagine how people can feel and how those kind of attitudes can actually, is, I'm not going to say breaking the trust between the official and the population, but it's actually, it's feeding that lack of trust because the lack of trust is already here. Yeah, it's almost like a can't win, don't try type of mentality. Like this is too big of a challenge for me as an individual to tackle. Am I wrong in characterizing it that way? No, 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 no. It's, uh, it's, um, it, it's, it's really real and, and it's really unfortunate. But again, that's why, I mean, that's why we're here. We need to push the population to, to hold the government accountable. And that's why we actually decided to, um, to, to create a new segment in our bulletin that we call Follow the Money, where we are actually monitoring all of the money that is being donated, whether it's, well, it, it could be money, it could be, um, it could be resources. So it's really to give the information to the population. And this is really great because what happened, the fact that there is somebody from the government that got caught selling the resources is actually the population who decided to put this information in all the social media instead of you know just talking about it or trying to put that that story on the side now you know the, the story has been everybody knows about it and there are some actions that have been taken to to fight us to fight this ava before we started our conversation you know just as we were sort of mingling in in the zoom chat oh you were telling me that that the situation in Mexico is deteriorating very quickly when it comes to COVID-19 and, and how the, the public and citizens are viewing the situation. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, of course, we're living um, uh, similar situations, just like the Zuba was, was explaining or even Ryan. Um, I think that in every country we have this trust issues, we have these transparency issues of, of where are donations going and whatnot. But what's going on here in Mexico that um, I've been paying really close attention to is this mistrust between different social actors. So you have, you know, the government trying to push for public health. Then you have the, the, the like VIP businessmen trying to maintain the status quo so that their businesses are not harm and then you have the the smaller businesses saying you know yes we're going to keep our people safe but we don't want to go under so um the whole economical uh, dimension of the crisis has sadly taken a center a central role so a lot of public health decisions right, right now are based on keeping the economy afloat now this is even more complicated when you begin to understand that our, that our country is oil dependent. So as oil prices crashed and then we had COVID, you know, our economy is right now in peril. So what I would expect, what I would, would have wished for was saying, you know, these business captains coming forward and leading the charge on keeping the country not only afloat economically, but also safe and calm 
And instead of that, we've been seeing them more and more pressure the government into opening up the cities faster. So I'm from the north part of the country. I'm from Monterrey. And in there, business is everything. So they opened up. And right now, hospitals are again overflowing. We had like a major break of the, of the virus again. So I, I think I've seen the, the best and the worst of people in the, in the past four months. Uh, and I'm really, really shocked and seeing how the true leadership, the responsible leadership is not coming from the, the very privileged people, but actually the people who have more contact with what I, I call their real world. So these dynamics of keeping people safe versus keeping the money flowing is really putting our country in peril. And then you have to add that our president does not wear a mask, that he has been traveling everywhere, and that he wants to treat every problem. His solution to every problem is a hug. In the low-touch economy, you know, you have this, this leadership figure that people do look up to saying, if, he, if he's not being careful, why should I? So in my neighborhood, for example, there's this very tiny uh, vegetable shop, and it has a major sign, and it says, we understand your politics and your views, but please wear a mask. So even amongst very small, tight uh, na- like neighbors, you, you, you have these fights going on about, does the virus exist or no? Is this pandemic? And then I'm even more worried about seeing people with PhDs or with master's degrees saying, if you take micro doses of fluorine, then you can kill yourself. So this whole like, oh, let's hate the big pharma companies and let's dive into alternative medicine is also creating a, a, a problem in which Mexico right now, it's among, amongst the top five worldwide in, in mortality rates because of this. So people arrive at the hospital, the hospital is overfilled, but they also arrive too late. So people go in and in seven, seven hours, they're dead. So real, real quick, earlier, first of all, I just want to let you know, just yesterday in, in the city of Toronto, they instituted or the law came into action that you had to wear a mask everywhere you went and you, when you were indoors, if private or public didn't matter. And a protest came out in one of the quarters of the city. It was called Hugs Over Masks. But I want to ask you that you, you said something very strong earlier that the economic profile of the virus has taken hold over the priority of the safety of your citizens. How has that manifested in terms of the messaging? Is it mostly along the lines of COVID is a myth? It's a, it's a, it's, it's a hoax. It's, a, what, it's not real. Or are they saying more something along the lines of, yeah, this is real, but the economic priorities are more important at this point, and some people will need to die. Do you know how that message has been presented to Mexicans? It's been mixed, but we have to understand something. These businessmen, they don't only own regular companies. They also own the media companies. So we came into a situation in which the media mogul said, you know, uh, guys, disregard what the government is saying. They're lying to you. You don't have to take extreme measures. You can come back to work. So imagine, you know, the, the channel which the most people are watching saying that sort of thing on prime time. So what we expect the next, the next day would be the president to come in and say, hey, we have to be responsible. I know he was like, well, they made a mistake. Everybody makes a mistake. And, and, and he keeps his very close relationship with, with this group. 
more and more we're seeing people that know they're doing wrong and they keep doing it anyway. It's not just about being confused about the messaging. It's, it's knowing what they're doing and, and disregarding the, 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 the value of, of someone's life. The question is really interesting. And um, in Mali, it's, uh, it's, it, Mali has, I'm going to say that like 75% of the population work in the informal sector. What happened is that um, when the when that COVID pandemic started, the government decided to have a, um, a lockdown from 9 p.m. to 5 p.m. And it lasted one month simply because every night people were actually going in this in the streets, burning, uh, burning things to 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 actually protest. So when you go out to work, the money that you're going to get for today is going to help you to to feed yourself or feed your family for the day after. The fact that we had that lockdown, the fact that um, at some point the government even talked about closing the market at 4, at 4 p.m., it didn't happen. So it's really, uh, I talk about like economy versus health, but here I guess the, the situation is really clear. The government stated itself, we cannot close everything, otherwise Malian are going to die of hunger. I mean, the choice was really clear. People decided to choose economy, simply because um, they, they need to they need to survive. This pandemic has put so many different things, like has really focused our priorities a lot of the times, especially in the States. Like none of us are, are in the States or based or even from the States, but that whole sort of healthcare conversation and universal healthcare in the States has really come to the forefront because of this pandemic. And, um, and it's, it's, it's a really tough spectrum to be on, unfortunately. We are running short on time a little bit for part one, but we're going to make full time because this has been an incredible conversation. I want to go to Narayan here and, and tell us a little bit what's happening in Kathmandu and Nepal in general when it comes to COVID-19 and CIVACs, because this is how the conversation began was a conversation about the CIVACs program that you guys have put together for uh, debunking rumors around COVID-19. So talk to us a little bit, Narayan, about what's going on over there. If, if we talk about COVID situation, until today, we've got almost uh, 17,000 new cases. Well, I'll say, yeah, 17,000 new cases in one day? No, no, no. It's like in total. Uh, but in the last uh, 10 or 15 days. So that's one of the fear is that because the, the, the rate of spreading going high, though we, we have a good news that the, the, the rate of recovery um, is also good. Almost half of them have already recovered and the death rate is 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 not significant so until now we just got 35 uh, you know death it's sad but the rate is still low but i think that the, the challenge here is that one is about you know the interpretation and how things are evolving especially from the government side yesterday the the spokesperson from the ministry of health said that you know, in few uh, few days, perhaps in a in a week or ten days, we might reach up to forty thousand new cases. But today, he said uh, we are under control and the rate of spreading is going down. So people got confused because there's a lot of confusions on how things, you know, how this uh, evolving and why this mess is being so so uh, changing is because whatever the government action. Uh, was not effective, uh, neither in terms of procurement from China, because whatever that has procured through army, 
was like counterfeited products. So that's why the government could not really expand the scope of the the, the testing, trashing, and and you know uh, these kind of things. The, the the conditions of quarantine and isolation and treatment is really really bad, really really poor. For many, maybe in for many other countries, this problem is maybe health and economy, but for us, it's health and the livelihood and the life. People having temporary jobs are facing facing a real problem, and they don't really care about because they know that. If you're gonna die anyway, anyway, why should we care about all these kind of government rules and wearing masks and following all this social distancing and all? That is another risk that we are we are having evolving at the moment. And the second is that, you know, we have a lot of migrant workers working abroad, particularly in Malaysia and the Gulf. So they eventually returning. So government is evacuating, and but they are not putting it properly in quarantine and holding centers. So, so they are getting away, walking away freely from the holding centers and then creating uh, a problem that they are not tested. So it's been very difficult on tracing. So in this, in the midst of the, all this, you know, situation, there is always a fake news and, you know, about government decisions, about how the virus spreads, how this, how this gets contaminated uh, or, you know, the role of medias. And interestingly, the few medias were doing great jobs in terms of investigating on corruption. But on the other side, the government using their mechanisms, particularly their political parties and cadres, to counter that good news, make you know, try to make it a fake news, which that's making a real, real problem. So, and you can you can see in the social media because in Nepal you have we have tons of people who use social medias from grandmothers to like, you know, grandchilds. And they rely much on these social media information rather than this, you know, this particular news because it, they don't have much, uh, you know, the access uh, compared to these fake news. So the good news is now countervailed by the fake news. The challenge is that. However, we you know with the civic acts campaigns, we are trying to, you know, debunk, you know, with the facts on the information, particularly on the government decisions and the, the, the community voices. This is a, a tough bind for me because we do have to start thinking about wrapping up the episode for a number of different reasons. And I want, I'd like to do some follow-up questions with you, Narayan, but unfortunately I need to move on to Blair because uh, you're, you're living in Pakistan and in, in Islamabad, and I'm assuming a lot of the COVID-19 issues that were brought up by Dasuba, Ava, and Narayan are similar but I'm also thinking they might be very different as well. So can you tell us a little bit about how things are coming along in your parts of the world? Yeah, in, in Pakistan, it's, uh, it's going downhill quite rapidly. Um, the number of recorded cases is, is going up dramatically, but of course the, the testing is not nearly what it, what it could be. I think there's about 240,000 total cases and about 5,000 deaths so far. But if you look at the, you know, the usual death rates um, you know, in, in Pakistan, the death rate in the last couple of months has been five or six uh, times more than, you know, than usual. So it, it's completely out of control. Um, and, and it is the result of, of many of the same, the same factors that, that have been mentioned. It's been challenging, I think, in particular for developing countries because they locked down often, you know, with very hard lockdowns very early and now have had to open up 
for for economic and other reasons, just as the virus is you know is spreading. Whereas countries in Europe, for example, you know did the same thing but have managed to you know to tamper it. And it of course has become become political. Pakistan, for example, you know has a lot has a strong religious constituency and is very the the, the prime minister is very proud of the fact that that Pakistan was the only country in the world that didn't shut down mosques at all. And that has been a place, uh, those have been places where, where the, the virus has, has clearly spread. Um, there are similar, similar issues of misinformation, disinformation, fake news, you know, difficulty understanding amongst, among citizens, you know, what, what's happening, not, not just with the virus itself and the health implications, but, but also in terms of what the government is doing and, and, you know, what that means for them as citizens. How do they access services? Where should they go if they're, if they're ill? What, what, you know, is happening in their community. And then challenges too, but it's a federal system and, and challenges between the different levels of governance, sort of messaging from, from the federal level versus, you know, the states uh, or the provinces as, as they are in Pakistan and, and then even below that. So all, all sorts of, you know, very difficult issues. It's a huge country. But the one point I would make, I think, is that corruption and accountability is both a, a cause and a consequence of of coronavirus, I would say actually at its at its core, this is an accountability challenge, not really a healthcare challenge. Of course, the the symptoms of, of this are are health related, but but the cause is really a lack of trust, as we've discussed, a lack of accountability, corruption in healthcare systems that have gutted health centres and hospitals that are now unable to deal with this, and uh, as a result of all of this, massive amounts of money from governments and from donors being put into the COVID-19 response and into stimulus packages um, without the requisite oversights, without the right procurement rules uh, and transparency rules in place. And all of this is, is causing even more trouble uh, in terms of the levels of corruption, the, the trust in government, the, um, the sense among citizens that, that things are being uh, responded to effectively. So it is a, a multidimensional and very difficult problem in Pakistan like everywhere else. The CIVAX program is something that the Accountability Lab put together, but it's not in all your countries. Am I wrong in, in thinking this? That's correct. It's in it's in some of the countries that we that we work, not all of them. Um, so Eva can talk more about Mexico, for example, but we haven't been doing it in Mexico because there are already organizations coming together to do that in useful ways, and we are supporting them to carry out those processes. Whereas in some other places like Nepal, which of course Narayan can talk more about, we had fantastic networks. We, we did this process after the earthquakes in Nepal five years ago. So understood how it worked, um, you know, had, had the organizational memory to roll it out um, and, and have built on that experience. So it, it varies a bit across contexts. I'm going to each give you guys a couple of minutes here because we have to wrap up sort of part one of this series and to talk about anything that you feel that we haven't had a chance to discuss yet relating to either the accountability lab or um, the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'm going to start first with Eva. Here's your two minutes to sort of freestyle, if you'd like, about anything that we have not discussed yet that you feel is important that should be mentioned. Well, for me, um, what's most important right now as I, I'm, as, I, as I have already mentioned, it's just understanding the role of the younger generations, you know? How can we open up better spaces? How can we create better tools? How can we be more uh, attentive and effective in your listening? So as we, you know, kind of help them lead the way, 
I do feel that as a generation, I'm not even a millennial. I think I'm the oldest of the group. I, I'm totally um, Gen X. And I do feel that we have been hoarding the mic, so to say. The, the world that, that we, we were raised up, raised up in is super different from the one that they have to deal with. And I do, do think that it is time for them to make the right choices and their own choices and have their own spaces. That being said, it's also super urgent for, for people in general, you know, to stop just being activists and start being politicians. We have understood that sometimes it's faster to change the system from inside the system. So that's where I feel that the whole integrity icon thing is amazing because these these public servants are actually entrepreneurs. You know, they're trying to change their system through their actions every day, and I think that that's super powerful and that that is something that we should promote more. Okay, um, Narayan, your two minutes. I think what I want to add is because this is a this is a very uh, you know, challenging situation. When we when we think of finding a solutions, we also need to think uh, in a very multi multi dimensional way. So we need to create a, a ecosystem of the the solutions, and to really find um, find a find a ways where we can still engage people who feel alienated and disfranchised uh, to to boost their motivation and bring them into a front line and encourage them to take the lead. Uh, and and celebrate that that set of new leadership and 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 new ideas. Okay, Dusuba, your two minutes. How how can we engage more um, the member of the communities in in making the, the the society more accountable, more responsible? This is really, um, I think, a priority. Here in Mali, um, we have a specific context in the sense that we have really to think of how we can better engage youth simply because the medium age here in mali is 19 years old so obviously you have to you need to include them in any kind of policies or any type of measures that you are putting in place and for that i think that it's really important to um to actually go into the community collect measure their perception talk with them um try to have Try to understand their perception, their understanding about the issues that we can have, whether it's toward COVID-19, whether it's toward governance. But it, it's really important to put them at the at the center of whatever you, we, we are doing. For example, there is something that we are doing here in, in Mali, and I, I was talking about youth because for me it's kind of a, a group that is put on the side, but there are other type of groups. For example, people who are living with disabilities. We do have a program here that is called Link and Learning, where we lately started a digital campaign online. Um, and for us, it was really important to, um, to again put the light on them so that they can be um, so, so that we can include them in the decision making process, in the conversation to make sure that they are not forgotten. They are not forgotten. And this is something that is really um, that, it, that is really important. We have so many. So many strengths here in this in this country, but there are so many people that are being put on the side, and unfortunately, they cannot um, they cannot join us in in that in that development process. In that, I don't want to say a fight because that that sounds that that sounds too harsh, 
but um, I think that it's really important to include um, most of the people. We need we need everyone's strength. And to close us off is Blair. Blair, what's uh, what do you have to say for a couple of minutes that we haven't talked about yet? Well, I know we're short of time, so I would just say I think I think we need to at this point completely reimagine what's possible. Uh, I, I don't think it's good enough to be talking about building back better. There's been many disasters after which we've said we're going to build back better, and we haven't. Um, and you know, and the previous normal wasn't good enough from from every possible uh, perspective, but certainly from an accountability uh, and governance perspective. And, and so I, I think we really at this point have an opportunity and an obligation as people that care about these issues to to completely rethink the way things work. And, and that relates to everything we've been we've been talking about, you know, the shift to the younger generation, the more creative approaches and, you know, and, and taking advantage of this crisis as terrible as it is to 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 rethink, you know, some of the fundamental tenets that, that seem to underpin these systems that we've actually realized, you know, now are untenable or, or not perhaps as important as we as we thought they were. For example, things like, you know, tax paying. I think there's, you know, elites have, have been dodging taxes forever. And, and now, you know, that they're trapped in their own countries and having to use their own healthcare systems are suddenly realizing the impacts of, of that. And, and I think there's, you know, there's room now to, to build on, on some of these realizations, to build on this, this new situation to say, right, you know, we're, we're really going to push here for, for a different type of fiscal regime, a different kind of accountability between, between people in, in power and, and elites um, and, and citizens. And, and so now is the time. So I, I think my, my point would be that we, we have to seize the moments uh, and, and really do things a bit differently. And, and we at the Accountability Lab would love to work with anyone listening who wants to do the same thing. And I couldn't agree more, and particularly when you were talking about the classes uh, that exist. And obviously, being in Canada, my the classes in, in in my parts of the world are different than yours. But there there was a comedian in the U.S. by the name of George Carlin for and for a long years he was very anti-establishment. He died a number of years ago, but he had this joke or this quote or this observation about the classes in the United States, which is. You have the upper class, has all the money, pays none of the taxes. You have the middle class, pays all the taxes, does all the work. And then you have the lower class, and they're just there to scare the crap out of the middle class. You know, keep them going to those jobs every day. And while they, the upper class, go to the bank and and just laugh and laugh and laugh. So I want to thank you all for joining this roundtable for part one of this discussion. Uh, I'll give you a few moments just to say bye because we got to wrap this up. So thank you for joining us. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And this concludes part one because, and we are going to have a lot more to go in part two, trust me. So join us on our next episode and where we'll be concluding the discussion. But in the meantime, thank you all for listening. And as usual, please leave a rating or a comment on how to make the podcast better, or if there's any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open.